Welcome to another edition of the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. My name is Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. And I'm coming to you today to talk about real estate, equity, and ESG, and how they converge in insurers' portfolios. And we're joined by a couple of experts, Sarah Queen and Jim Landau from MetLife Investment Management. Welcome. Thanks, Stuart. We're so happy to join you today. Stuart, really thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be fun today. I mean, we've got a lot to cover. There's a lot that's happened in real estate from changes in capital charges to, you know, how does it, does it hedge inflation and ESG? And there's just a lot here. But just at 50,000 feet, why do you think real estate represents an attractive opportunity for insurance companies right now? Well, I think overall, it provides a really good diversified return. There's a lot going on in the real estate space that we can talk a little bit as we go through about some market and opportunities that we see there. But it's also a time where we're seeing that there is significant growth in the real estate market. And because of the changes in some of the capital allocation, which I know sounds a little bit like the deadly part of a uh, uh, <laughs> of a story, it should enable more growth of, for insurers into the real estate space. And I have to say, I, I started my career in real estate. I love to talk about real estate. And so you're going to have to keep me from just talking about all the market stuff but there's some really interesting opportunities. And then when you couple that with the way that we can use real estate to positively impact ESG goals as we go forward, I think it's a real win-win for insurers. Can you talk a little bit about the transparency in the sector? I mean, real estate, particularly for MetLife Investment Management, you've been in this market a long, long time, right? And how has it changed? And I guess where I started, what about the transparency in the sector today versus prior? Yeah, so MetLife started investing in real estate over a century ago. And, you know, it has deep, deep roots in both office development, multifamily development, the major classes of real estate over that time period. And even when I started my career many years ago, you know, there just wasn't as much data that was widely available. Today, you know, because of a lot of the transparency on both pricing, you know, what are assets being sold for, but also because of the open-ended fund structure and the growth of open-ended funds, there's just a lot more data and availability of understanding what the trends are and where things are actually trading. And not only that, you couple that with the fact that the average institutional asset size has grown significantly over the last few years. Like now, I think the average asset in the Odyssey index, which is an open-ended index that, that gets referenced a lot, is basically $100 million. So, you know, these are not small assets that people don't know what they're trading for. They're widely reported. You can see transparency. And that has really opened up the industry in a new way. So in that way, and the other big change that's gone on recently is a change in the RBC treatment. Jim or Sarah, what, what can you tell us about that? Well, I think, Jim, I'll, I'll save you from that. 
but yeah, in the last year, there's been some big changes in the RBC and they particularly have implications for insurance companies. These changes had really been in the works for years and really were the impact, the, really based on the fact that the way the risk-based capital requirements were looked at were more outdated because they were based on a time when there was less transparency in the market. And as we've been able to modernize and update that RBC framework, which MEM took an active role in, we've been able to reduce what the capital charges are. So the C1 RBC factor for wholly owned real estate was reduced from 15% to 11%. And the factor for JV and fund investments was reduced from 23% down to 13. These changes, should spur new investment by insurance companies into the real estate space. And we're really excited by those prospects. And I think too, I mean, insurance companies are forced to own a very large percentage of investment grade fixed income, right? And the risk today with rates where they are is that it's just an unmanageable rate of return from those investments. So that's coupled with the fact that we've got some big inflation prints, which erode the value of bond portfolios. And historically, real estate has been a pretty effective inflation hedge. Is that still the case today? And if so, in what way? Sure. So that real estate very much can be an inflation hedge. And there's really kind of two main pieces to that. One is the fact that you have these leases that are continually being reset to market. You know, in office, that those tend to be longer, and multifamily, those tend to be shorter leases, right? But they're, you are resetting them on a regular pace. You can also manage your roles, so you're trying not to have your entire portfolio, you know, roll at the same time, so you're not overexposed to the economic market at any one point in time. The other thing is that the leases provide adjustment for operating expense growth usually. So, you know, as electric costs go up and cleaning costs go up, that also gets added into the rental stream of the building. So you're also protected that way. The other large way that you're protected is that as it costs more and more to build a building because of increases in inflation, you look at the value of the buildings today versus what we call the replacement cost, what it costs to build the building. And if the replacement cost is exceeding what the current value of the building is, you see a slowdown in construction, which then slows the rate of supply and allows demand to catch back up. So, you know, one of the things that we've been, you know, looking at is, you know, not just, you know, construction costs, but also as we move to more green construction costs, which I think is also a good segue, we can talk a little bit about some of the interesting work that Jim's been doing on the ESG front for us. I want to get to ESG, and you just mentioned that with Jim in just a second. Before we go there, one of my questions is, if I'm an insurance investor, should I be investing direct? Should I be investing in funds? Does it matter how big I am? Does it matter what kind of insurance company I am? What's the answer to do I buy direct or fund? It really depends on what your objectives are and how much capital are you willing to commit. 
you know, the direct investing. So you'd go out, you know, buy a building, for instance, and you can target a specific asset class. You can target and start to build out a diversified portfolio for yourself or, you know, a specific geography if that's what you're most interested in. Now, the advantage is you get that targeted approach, but unless you can get to scale, then you are you have greater risk. So, you know, greater tenant risk, greater economic risk on the market that you're in. So, for example, on my if you bought an office building, you know, it all comes down to who your tenants are. Do you have too much concentration of when those tenants expire? Does all that rollover happen in one year? If there's an issue in the market, you know, it can affect your entire portfolio, for instance, and changes in local regulations, all of those things. But it does allow you to construct a portfolio on your needs but that risk is more concentrated. So that's the trade-off. There can also be some tax advantages, so you have to work through that. On the fund investing, if you go into an open-ended core fund, for instance, that's a great way for you to be able to access real estate with a much larger diversified portfolio. So you're not as incumbent on this one office building in this one locale. There you have you know, lots of investments made across the country and all different sizes and all different asset classes. The fund manager will actively be managing buying, selling, redeveloping assets within the portfolio to determine what's that right mix to hit their return objectives. Thanks. We started off the podcast by talking about how real estate equity and ESG converge in an insurer's portfolio, which, Jim, hey, here we go. How has ESG evolved at MetLife Investment Management Real Estate Division? So great question, Stuart. Thank you for the opportunity. You know, first of all, you know, it's probably just worth noting that ESG in general has really, and, and we've all seen this exploded in all investment classes, not even just real estate. And I'll just, for instance, at MetLife Investment Management, you know, Sarah and I work in the real estate division, but we also have, you know, public fixed income investments and private placements, infrastructure investments, capital markets. And the focus on ESG is impacting all asset classes right now. In many ways, real estate's a leading edge. We've got more experience in the field, but it's catching up due to investor demand, both domestically and, and internationally. So at MetLife, to answer your question, we've always been focused on sustainability. Why? Because in many ways, it's all it's historically been about net operating income, lowering expenses, increasing revenue, and largely, I mean, I believe at least, that that's really, you know, where the focus has been over for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. More recently, we've really refined how we're looking at carbon and, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and reporting, you know, the G and ESG governance has become very important, both at the state level, city level, and even at the international level. And with institutions like the United Nations, you know, taking a big lead here. At MetLife, we started a sustainability group or energy and sustainability group, you know, maybe 10 years ago, over the years that's evolved. And to this point, I am now the head of ESG for MetLife Real Estate, which includes our equity and commercial mortgage and agricultural finance, which is a debt platform, both in the US and internationally. So, and I'm building a team right now. And that's in addition to expanding the consultants that we use, external consultants over the years. So I think what we're doing is emblematic of what the rest of the industry is doing. I'd like to think that we're the leading edge and in many ways that we're setting the standard, but it's becoming 
a must-have for investors. So there's new legislation that's out, carbon and energy legislation that have been enacted in several U.S. cities. How is MEM, the acronym for MetLife Investment Management, how is MEM addressing these laws, this new legislation? Yeah, in a variety of ways. So first off, yes, to your point, there is new legislation, for instance, Local Law 97 in New York City, the new Birdo Law in Boston, Denver, D.C., St. Louis, the state of Washington, Montgomery County, Maryland, many jurisdictions, city, state, local level have been instituting carbon or energy legislation. I might add, this is not new. So for going back at least a decade, disclosure requirements that cities have enacted have been in place in most major markets. They were rather simple. Building owners had to disclose total energy use or whole building energy use once a year. They evolved a little bit to benchmarking laws. So cities established certain minimum requirements and you were required to benchmark against those, meaning, you know, show how your metrics for your building are, you know, compared to other similar assets, right? More recently, these new energy and carbon laws have, have taken hold. We anticipate that they're going to expand and continue in most major markets. First off, they impact potentially cash flow. If an asset is going to experience significant annual penalties because its energy use or carbon emissions are too high, then that has an impact on value and we need to know about it. So we're working closely with our acquisition team and our asset management team to understand what that impact might be. Secondly, and this is brand new, we're just rolling out new underwriting guidelines. So we're looking at energy use, carbon intensity. We're looking at it, you know, versus, you know, certain metrics that we've defined. And if an asset is doing better than that metric, you know, we might actually reduce a reversion cap rate to reflect that lack of risk, both today and, you know, 10 years from now, when that property reverts and we sell it. So, and I might add that we're not just doing that in markets that have established these, this legislation already. We anticipate that most major markets where we're investing will enact similar legislation over the next several years. So it's really something that's certainly going to affect the reversion of the property, if not just the cash flow. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sarah mentioned it earlier, you know, MetLife Investment Management has been in the real estate market for 100 years. You're a major player in this space. Uh, you and your clients own and manage a lot of real estate. And I realize that you're taking this, your ESG goals and objectives very seriously. And you've come up with something called the Met Zero program. What is it? What are you trying to accomplish there? First of all, it's a great name, isn't it? It's it there. is a very good name. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I'm a name junkie. I mean, you know, I came up with Insurance AUM. I I love it. I'm, you know, Pension AUM, I own that. It's all good. But I got to say, kudos to you on Met Zero. So, look, it's really simple. It's what most of the industry is trying to do today. We're looking to track emissions in all of our assets and in portfolios and in aggregate for, you know, all assets that we own or invest in. And we wanna lower net emissions year over year. I need to say that the industry throws around terms like net zero or net zero carbon or carbon neutrality. And many people interpret or define these terms 
differently. It's important to note that in investment real estate, in a multi-tenant investment real estate, it's going to be very hard, particularly in mid-rise, high-rise, urban, multifamily buildings, in any time in the near term to achieve true net zero, where the building is producing as much energy as it's using. That's really difficult. And it's going to require new technology and innovation, which a lot of very smart folks are working on, you know, over the next, you know, decades, really. But but the um, reality is that today it's not here, right? I mean, it's just the technology is just not here. You know, if you've got a single story, 3000 square foot bank branch in the southeast, yes, you can put solar on the roof and that building can be truly net zero for mid rise, high rise, sophisticated buildings and urban areas. No, it's not feasible today. What we are doing, though, and what we can do and what's critical that we do is that we track our emissions and we try to lower them year over year on a same store basis. So energy efficiency and reducing demand, those are really those have been the key things and you know what we've been looking at and the industries we're looking at for for the last 10 years. And, and they're still critically important. That's the number one focus. Increase efficiency, lower demand wherever feasible. And that's both in terms of landlord owner use and tenant use. It's important to note that for most mid-rise, high-rise multifamily office buildings, tenants control anywhere from 70 to 90 or even more or even above 90% of the energy use in that building. So we really need to partner with our tenants. And we have programs in place that are enabling us to do that. Figure out where we're in alignment with our, our tenants. You know, many of them are national and regional, local, you know, law firms, tech firms, accounting firms, it's consulting firms, and they have ESG goals. They have carbon goals, much like ours. If we can figure out where we're in alignment, we can work together and we can lower emissions. Secondly, add on-site renewables like solar and wind, fuel cells, you know, where feasible. Third, off-site renewables, purchasing green power and other large, maybe even district scale renewable energy projects that we can pursue. And we're looking at all of the above. Finally, um, once all of that is done, if you, we really want to achieve carbon neutrality, and we are doing that today on certain vehicles, we can purchase renewable energy certificates or RECs and carbon offsets. That's really the last step in the process. I'm always the one that learns the most on these podcasts. I love it. I get a great education and I, I really appreciate it. Let me ask you a question that I think is in the back of the minds of a lot of investors. There was a recent survey that was published that said 92% of people who are concerned with ESG are doing it partly for a reputation, right? Which is effectively, you know, yeah, I want to check that box, right? And I think that there's a certain percentage of people who say, well, yeah, ESG is great, but that's going to cost me return. That's going to cost me alpha somehow or the other. And yet you have put these two together, real estate and ESG. Do you think it's true that an ESG focus or a net zero goal is aligned with better long-term performance or do you think it's a drag? Oh, I think it's very much aligned. I think where you sit and you look at today, both you're looking for efficiencies in your operations that reflect that. And the other thing that happens is sometimes the risk, the true risk of an asset is not being adequately reflected in some of those underwriting. So if you're like, oh, 
this ESG stuff is just isn't really important. It's not going to matter in 10 years. The cost to run your buildings could be significantly more than it is today. And so if you don't take the steps today to build an efficiency, make decisions where you can, you're going to have more difficulty later. The other thing that we find is that a lot of times when you're replacing equipment today and making decisions, you're actually lowering your cost of operations today. And so there's, you know, there's an actual payback in the short run for making these decisions. And so, you know, to us, it's really an alignment of, of both of these interests. It's important to us because we're people on this planet, but also because we think that it's a smarter investment decision on the long term. I think that any ESG discussion has to include a piece on climate change. You know, we see it here in Chicago. It, things are different than they used to be. A lot of folks say that, especially when you're, you know, when you're as gray as I am. Has your underwriting or your approach changed as a result of climate change? It has, yes. You know, when we think of climate change, we think of two types of risk, physical risk, and transition risk. So with regard to physical risk, that includes, you know, increased risk from rising heat, uh, wind, water levels, storm surge, et cetera. There are several tools on the market today that help to measure physical risk. We've been employing one of them for a couple of years. We used it for every new equity acquisition and loan origination. And if there's an indication of high risk for any of those factors, we dig in. Our risk manager, our internal regional architect, our asset management and acquisition teams, you know, put their heads together and trying to figure out, first of all, has this asset already mitigated that risk? Is mitigation in the in the long-term capital plan for the asset? Or, you know, in, in the case of this asset, you know, are we comfortable with that risk? Secondly, transition risk. We already touched on this earlier when we're talking about local laws and legislation and regulation, that poses transition risk. And we've really already addressed that aspect of it. So it's something that I think most real estate investors are considering today. And I, you know, no ASG discussion is complete without climate. No real estate discussion is complete without talking about the impact that COVID has had on real estate fundamentals. And I know from previous podcast that it is very property type specific. So if you would just kind of, can you talk about the major property types and the impact that COVID has had on those segments? Sure, Stuart, I'd be happy to. So if we think about industrial assets or warehouses or logistics, depending on what you want to call them, you know, really COVID is the rise and more people adopting e-commerce and the speed at which everybody wants their deliveries. You know, it used to be you were happy with, you'd get it in three days, then it was two days. And now, you know, if I can't get it in, you know, two hours, I'm annoyed. It has really driven a growth in logistics and warehouse spaces. And so both from close in to enable that last, what we call last mile delivery, isn't always just a mile, but that close in feedback, as well as the bigger box warehouses that you see up and down the highway at times. So for example, an e-commerce client tends to take three times the amount of warehouse space as a typical retailer. And so both the growth of e-commerce and the speed at which people want things has really spurred a big increase in industrials. So COVID 
has actually had a positive impact on the industrial space. On multifamily, you know, really driven by employment and demographic trends, you know, at the beginning of COVID, there was a lot of concern of what was going to happen, particularly city versus suburban and all that. And that continues to play out. But what we've seen is that there's been a return of rates back to in a lot of markets pre-COVID levels. Some are still approaching that, but we've seen a strength in rental rates across the board, particularly in markets that have seen a the most influx of people. And we've also seen a focus on the amenity spaces in those multifamily units. They want outdoor space. You know, people really care about their pet runs. And it's not just a dog run anymore. It is a dog spa where they can get washed and, you know, and everything. Yeah, you cannot believe all the, the stuff that gets put in the amenity spaces for apartments today. On the office side, obviously really driven by job growth, what's going on in the employment sector. You know, we have record low unemployment again. When we look at the markets that have been heavily tech focused, we continue to see new large leases being done in those markets, even though physical occupancy in most office buildings are not back. You know, I think around the U.S., I think we're still only at 20, 25% of physical occupancy in the building versus where we were beforehand. You know, that will continue to come back hopefully soon as we get through this phase of the pandemic. But what you're seeing from those larger tech companies that are committing to large pieces of space is that they're saying, we miss being in the office, we miss the collaboration, we miss the talent development, and we we think it's a very important for us long-term for our culture and our talent development to be back in the office. And I think that will continue to spur people doing that. The other thing I would say is that, you know, for the most part, we have not seen, although vacancies have risen as you know as leases have expired sometimes tenants have let those expire and not picked new spaces particularly on the smaller side but you've continued to see the tenants pay their rents so although you your physical occupancy is down most of the office buildings are still you know producing the same amount of tenant income as they were before and then we get to retail you know very much driven by consumer spending population distribution. Now the shift to e-commerce has had a negative impact on a lot of retail centers. But what you've seen on the grocery anchored centers, for instance, has been real resiliency during the pandemic. You've also seen a lot of retailers adjust to offering curbside pickup and some other innovations. You know, retail had been suffering a little before the pandemic. The pandemic has not helped them by any stretch of the imagination. But even within that sector, there are bright spots. And so you have to pick the right asset and in the right locations. And just kind of as a wrap up question, before we get to the ask me anything question, which is coming at the end, I don't want to show my hand. But so when you're making an investment decision, walk me through what are you looking for? I tend to look at it as first off, is this a good investment? Does the upside outweigh the downside? Can we mitigate some of the downside risks? Do the returns make sense over the life of the asset? We have to understand how are we going to make money for our clients on the asset? Do we need to release it? Do we have to upgrade it? Do we need to renew a major tenant in three years? 
How do we see the market changes impacting this asset in the short and long run? And how do we drive and create value? To me, the heart of being an active investment manager is thinking about every day, how am I creating value for my clients? And how am I looking at this asset to drive its performance over time? Now, part of that is also thinking about the long-term implications that Jim already covered, that some of the things that we think about on the ESG side, how have we incorporated that, how have we dealt with those risks? Then we think about what is the impact the market is going to have on performance? Is this a growing market? What causes that market to grow? Is it in decline? Is this a market that's attracting a lot of new investment? So what are the economic factors going on in the market? Then I start to think about, does this investment create any risks for my particular clients? So for example, my client already has a lot of warehouse space, maybe leased to Amazon. They may not want to buy an office building that's also leased to Amazon or buy a multifamily building located across the street from Amazon's headquarters. There may be another client it's appropriate for, but you have to think about those more macro issues in the portfolio construction. And then Overall, you're looking at your return projections, understanding the risk in those projections, and understanding your ability to beat market over time. I really want to thank you both. We kicked it off saying, how does real estate and ESG converge in insurance companies' portfolios? And we've covered a lot of ground, and I've learned a lot, and I appreciate that. We have come to the portion of the program called the Ask Me Anything section. And I always do this for all the students out there that are potentially listening. And I was a professor for a long time and I, I have a soft spot in my heart. So here we go, Sarah, I wanna take you back to a day I know you remember well, it's the graduation day of your undergraduate institution. Regardless of what festivities may have taken place the evening before you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, your last name starts with Q, so you're at the back third of the alphabet. So you've been waiting a while. You go up the stairs, you make a turn and they, they read your name. The crowd goes crazy. I mean, crazy. You get a quick handshake. There's a photo op. They hand you your diploma and you walk down the stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, you meet Sarah Queen today. What advice do you give your 21-year-old self? Um. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, there was such a long setup. I thought we were going in a whole different direction. The, uh, <laughs> I would say, believe in yourself and take risks. God um, love you. That's what I'd say too. That's a, that's <laughs> a, that. I love that. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead, please. No, no. That is, I would say, look, it's very easy, particularly when you're starting out to doubt your instincts and reinforcing that no, they're. It's good to observe, but you, you've you got this. And look, if you don't take any risks, then you're never going to find out how far you can stretch. And so it's really important that you continue to challenge yourself and try new things and continue to stay curious. Jim, how about you? You know, I'm just going to piggyback off of what, what Sarah just put out there because I agree with all that. I would add, run to adventure. So, you know what? I regret that I didn't take two years to join the Peace Corps or to backpack across Europe, you know, with it, with no money in my pocket, you know, you're not going to do that kind of thing. You know, once you settle down, once your career really starts to take off, once you, you know, get married, start having kids, that sort of thing. So run to adventure, take advantage of all the opportunities that, that are thrown in front of you. I really love that. I think it's such good advice. I've told many, many students, you know, they'll graduate in May and their job starts, 
you know, July 1. And I'm like, listen, I don't care if you've got the money or not. Go someplace. Go someplace you've, you know, you've always wanted to go because you're not going to get six weeks off again for a long time. So <laughs> take advantage of it. And I love the advice to take more risks. So is this my opportunity to ask Sarah if I can take six weeks? This is. This is the right time. And and you're doing it on a podcast. So, you know, she's probably going to say, yeah. Um, so I really we can talk to you. Yeah, exactly. Sarah Queen, Jim Landau, MetLife Investment Management, otherwise known as MIM. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate it. I want to thank our listeners. And if you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast.